I believe that the timing in Baltimore City is such now that people are saying, whoa, we're going over a cliff and we need to do something dramatic today. And I think that they see that I'm that kind of person, that I'm that kind of candidate that will take us in a different direction in a better direction. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. In recent years, we've seen a change in the type of people who think they can run a city or a country, for that matter. You know, of course, Exhibit A is the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, and there's no need to go through his track record to show that, uh, you know, experience from areas that are not in politics could lead to failure. But, you know, as a matter of principle, I don't think there's anything that says that someone who is not a career politician, someone who hasn't spent years and years in the legislature or the executive branch, that that person can't, in principle, be an excellent uh, leader, whether it's for a city, for a state, or for a country. I don't know whether that's going to be one of the very few positive legacies of our current times, but I like to think that people look at the president now and say, wow, you know, if he can do it, I know I could do a lot better job. And maybe that'll open up more opportunities for more talented people. Of course, you know, I said it's something we've seen in recent years, but you can just go back to, well, Mayor Bloomberg, who was very successful, I think, as the mayor of New York City, but had, when he ran for president, or at least a Democratic nomination for president, that really didn't work out too well and was kind of embarrassing. But go back to, I think, the early 90s, Ross Perot, do you remember him? Ross Perot ran for president, I think, as an independent, not as a Republican or a Democrat, and he did reasonably well as a third-party candidate. So there are examples of this. Right now, we don't think of a lot of positive examples, but there are a lot of examples, and it makes me think of our guest today on the SIDCast, Robert Wallace. And here's someone who is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses, a man who started literally with nothing, growing up in a family that really had no advantages, living in poverty. Now, of course, that's not exactly right. They had a really big advantage, which was that the Wallace family had a set of parents, Bob's mom and dad, that instilled a set of values into him and his siblings, values that allowed each of the five kids in the family to actually thrive. And it shows you really the power of setting in place the right values. And again, the contrast with other politicians that might be on our mind is clear. And, you know, for Bob Wallace, uh, extremely successful, someone whose parents, you know, helped him imagine that there could be a better life for him for his family, for his siblings as well. And this very same Bob Wallace, this entrepreneur, this rags to riches story, he's right now running for mayor of Baltimore as an independent. And in a few short weeks, we're going to see what those results are in Baltimore to see if he gets in. And this episode of the SIDCast, you're going to get to learn about who he is and what he's made of and what he's done and how he thinks. And I'm just going to say it's pretty cool. It's pretty exciting to see someone with this type of mindset and integrity, deep integrity, and innovation, and verified real accomplishment as an entrepreneur. It's really something to see that as he tries to bring that to the campaign in Baltimore, and maybe, maybe even win. You know, of course, this is a crazy idea, because it turns out that the Democratic Party has had a lock on the mayor's office in Baltimore for over 50 years. And Bob Wallace, as I said, he's running as an independent. And so, yeah, a lot of people probably think, and I know have said to him that he's crazy to do this, but that's how much he believes in it. And I, I just find it fascinating when people seek out these 
challenging, way out of your comfort zone opportunities. And when people take on such opportunities, not because they predominantly stand to personally benefit, and this is, of course, where the contrast with the current U.S. president couldn't be clear, but because they really want to make life better for people. In this case, the city of Baltimore that's struggling with high unemployment, high crime, job loss, population loss, and Bob Wallace thinks he can actually turn it around. And when I started speaking to Bob, you know, in the podcast, as you'll hear in a minute, I started thinking, well, why not? Doing things the way they've always been done in the past is not a particularly effective way to make things better, is it? So who is Bob Wallace? He's an internationally known entrepreneur, author, business consultant, keynote speaker, over 40 years industry experience in engineering, in energy, in IT, in consulting. And he's the proverbial and the real inspirational leader who makes people think they can do even more. He grew up in the Baltimore projects in poverty and in racial segregation. He overcame tremendous social and economic obstacles, classic rags to riches story to become this very successful serial entrepreneur. He worked for companies like IBM and DuPont and Procter and Gamble. He went to school at the University of Pennsylvania where he earned his engineering degree. He got an MBA from Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business where of course I am on the faculty. And he established three significant companies, the Bythe Group Technologies Company, which is cybersecurity and IT services, Bythe Energy, which is energy services and tech. And through the Robert Wallace Media, he's created a learning and education company as well. He's a major speaker, consultant, advisor to corporate and government leaders. He's served on the Board of Regents for the University System of Maryland. He's been on, well, it's a very long list. I'm not even going to read you all of them. You could check out his bio in the show notes. A long list of contributions and volunteer work and support for people in Baltimore and in Maryland more generally. If that's not enough, Bob has actually written eight books on wealth creation, strategic partnerships, business spirituality, which is a topic we talk about in the podcast and emerging markets and entrepreneurship. And he's writing a couple more as well. The books address challenges faced by women, people of color, entrepreneurs of all stripes from both domestic and globally emerging markets. He's very supportive of education, especially STEM programs. He regularly mentors students in high school and college. He's heavily involved in the community as a spiritual leader as well. And he's a giver. And he's an accomplisher. And it's just so interesting to talk to people like Bob. I know the number of people listening to this episode of the Sidcast who just happen to be living in Baltimore is going to be very small. But I want you to imagine, no matter where you are right now as you listen to Bob and I talk, is this someone you'd be willing to bet on yourself? Is this someone you'd like to see in your own communities or your own states or your own countries for that matter? And I think you're going to like this chat with Bob Wallace, the entrepreneurial politician, the entrepreneur who is running for mayor of Baltimore. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Robert Wallace. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well, Sid. How about you, my friend? Very good. Where are you right now as we talk? So we are at my campaign headquarters in downtown Baltimore as we're beginning another day of this campaign for me to become mayor, the next mayor of Baltimore City. So it's a very exciting time. Okay, well, that's what I'm going to ask you to get started, right? I mean, why do you want to be mayor? You're a very accomplished, very successful business person. You've done a lot of really interesting things. Running for mayor cannot be the simplest thing, the easiest thing in the world. Why do you want to do this? No, it's not, Sid. It will most likely be one of the most difficult things that I've ever done. 
I think it's important to recognize that I'm from Baltimore City, born and raised in the projects here in South Baltimore. So my roots are here in the city. I love the city. I did go away to school. I went away to UPenn to study mechanical engineering. I worked a number of corporate jobs in IBM, Procter Gamble, DuPont, Westinghouse before coming to talk, as a matter of fact, and came to talk in 1982. Graduated in 84, but then 84, I came back to Baltimore, said, to launch my businesses and take care of my parents. So that, that brought me back. I'm what's called what we call a boomerang kid, a child. I started in Baltimore, left to get educated and to, you know, advance my career, but ended up back in Baltimore later in life. And so I came back here for that reason. And so I built my business. I moved it to Baltimore City. And what I began to see, said, were some of the problems that the city has. We're going in the wrong direction as a city. We're getting smaller in size. We used to be a over a million person population. We're now below 600,000 people in our city. Poverty has has increased. Violence has increased. Crime is on the increase as well. Homicides. Everything says going in the wrong direction. And I just looked at what was happening and looked at the leadership that we've had in the city for the last couple of decades. And I said, you know what? This is not going to work. If you always do what you've always done, then you will always get what you've always gotten. And so in the city of Baltimore, we keep electing these career politicians and we get terrible results. And I just felt that a business person, a business-minded person, would be the best kind of leadership to lead our city in a new direction. That's why I'm running. You said a lot there that I want to dig into, this career politician thing. So you're running as an independent, aren't you? That is correct. I yeah. am. And Baltimore is a Democratic city. I think the uh, mayor of Baltimore has been a Democrat for at least 50 years running. So you understand something about competition and uh, competitive landscape and things like this. And you're going up against the giant of the giant machine. I mean, how do you think you have a chance? I just got to ask you this. How do, how do you have a chance against a machine like that that's been in the driver's seat literally for 50 plus years? Absolutely, Sid. I mean, there's no question. Look, Sid, I come from a family of Democrats. My family is multi-generational Democrats here in Baltimore. My mother and father were part of the Democratic machine for decades. So I, I got my roots in the Democratic Party. But later in life, I became a Republican because I felt that the Republican Party had a better platform for building businesses and economic engine in the city that will lift all the people. But fast forward to the day of the Trump era and where the Republican Party has shifted, I felt that that does not match who I am and what I believe. And so the independent perspective becomes more critical for me. What we're doing in Baltimore, said is what Obama built in 2007, 2008. That is, we are building the coalition of the ascendant. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we're building a coalition of people in the city who feel that the city is going in the wrong direction, that the leadership is corrupt, and that we need to change. So who are they? They are Democrats. They are Republicans. They are independents. They are the unaffiliate. They are the essential workers in our society, the nurses and the janitors and people who work in essential jobs for our city. They are blue collar. They're white collar. So we're building this coalition that's never been built before in Baltimore's history, Sid. And as you know, you and I know as businessmen, you know, what's critical in success in business is timing. You can have a great idea and a great plan, but if the timing is not right, you know, it's still not going to work. I believe that the timing in Baltimore City is such now that people are saying, whoa, we're going over a cliff and we need to do something dramatic today. And I think that they see that I am that kind of person, that I'm that kind of candidate that will take us in a different direction, in a better direction. 
So it is a David Goliath situation here. But David did win that battle, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer. Have you been thinking about this for a while, to run for mayor? Has this been something that's been in the back of your head for a while? Because, you know, the problems in Baltimore and many, many other cities, they're not brand new. They've gotten worse now, I think, with the coronavirus and protests and, and with the Trump administration. But they weren't great before either. That is so true, Sid. And the answer is yes, Sid. I have been contemplating this for probably at least 12 years, you know, three election cycles. And what I have done in the past, Sid, is I've supported candidates, career politicians, unfortunately, that I thought could move the needle. And so I put my money and my influence behind these politicians. And every situation said they let me down. They could not move the needle. They could not move our city forward. And so it has become clear to me that that model of leadership, that model of change will not work and will not help Baltimore City. And that's why I felt that I had to get in or a business person had to get in to try to make a difference in our city. You you said they let you down. Could you share an example of that? I mean, you had expectations or they made promises or they weren't able to think differently. I mean, is there anything in particular you could share that people get a good feel for what you mean by that? Absolutely. So number one is promises were not kept. All right. Number two, not listening to good advice. Right. So when you bring an idea or solution and the idea not being seriously considered. And then thirdly is being committed to the democratic philosophy of how problems are solved. Even though those solutions that they've tried for decades don't work and haven't been working, the inability or the unwillingness to go in a different direction. Those are the things I looked at. I said, no, this is not going to work. This is not work for me. And I'm not going to waste my time no longer supporting men and women like that who don't have the vision and the innovation to change our city. So I'm fed up. Enough is enough. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say a Democratic Party solutions, standard solutions, what are you talking about? So I think there have been certain approaches to solving problems in the city. I'll take, for example, let's take poverty, right? So with poverty, the idea has been how can we come up with these programs, right, to help people, to help them on the personal level. And while I believe, Sid, that that is a necessary part of the solution, I think what's missing is how do we help people to empower themselves, How do we help people to build businesses? How do we help people to create a foundation of wealth? How do we help people to instill hope in them that they're using their God-given gifts, that they can change and transform their lives? You know, my mom was a janitor. My dad was a laborer. My mom was also a recovering alcoholic. So as a kid, we had this really difficult situation. We didn't have heat in the winter in many cases. We didn't have food sometimes. So we struggled. But there were three things that mom and daddy instilled in us. Number one, the power of hard work, the power of digging in and hard work. The second thing they instilled in us was the importance of education. And then thirdly was faith in God. So between hard work, education, and faith in God, we were able to find a way to create a path out of poverty. And I think as a business person, what I've also learned is that creating a entrepreneurial class, particularly in the urban center, is going to be key to building a long-term sustainable economic engine that will lift all the people in the city. And so I felt that the leadership just didn't, didn't get that. The democratic approach did not include that second piece. And so as an independent, what I bring to the table, said, I bring the importance of, yes, developing us on the human level, but also developing a business or economic development system that we can economically sustain the people of our city. And I think that's what I bring as an independent that these democratic leadership has not done in decades. 
When you announced, not formally announced, but talked to your friends and your family and said, I'm actually going to do it. I've been talking about this for a decade. I'm actually going to do it. What did they say to you? Like your your own kids? They said, Daddy, have you lost your mind? Have you gone insane? They said, why in the world would you want to take on what is most likely to be one of the most difficult jobs in America today, right? Which is rebuilding and returning around Baltimore City. My wife is a trooper. She's with me when I was at Tuck. We had two kids when I came into Tuck. We had three when we left. She's a trooper and she always supports me when I have these crazy ideas and she supported me here. Now she did put some parameters around this in terms of what she would accept and what she would not accept. And people said, why would you, you know, you built your business You raised five wonderful kids. They're all grown, doing great things. You got eight grandkids doing wonderful things. You know, you've traveled the world. Why would you, Bahab, want to take on this job? You know, sometimes we are called in life to do things that don't make sense on paper. And I'm sure that Dr. King, when he graduated from college and he could have gone to you know Atlanta and pastored the church and done very, very well, when he was called into the civil rights movement, I imagine he said, hmm, you know, this is going to be a tough job, but you do it. Or Mandela, Nelson Mandela, when he was fighting apartheid in South Africa and had to come out of prison after 27 years in prison to become president of a country that was torn apart and then bringing it back together. I'm sure he has some questions in his mind, too. But he did it anyway. And so I think sometimes we're called in life to do things that don't make sense on paper, but you're called to do it. And so you must do it because it's necessary. Is there a religious side to this? Because you talked about, you know, the three pillars you learned from your parents and one of them was faith. And in a sense, what you're talking about is you need some type of faith to do something that no one thinks you can do. That is, as you even said yourself or your family said, is a crazy idea. Is that factored into your thinking in some way? Because you're trying to do something that logically doesn't make sense. Absolutely, Sid. I mean, look, I am very clear about where I get my strength from. And my strength with Bob Wallace comes from my faith in God. And my family was built that way. I built my businesses that way. And that's who Bob Wallace is. And so, yes, there is a big part of that. I mean, to whom much is given, much is required. So as I have been blessed with a wonderful family and great health and a business success, you know, I'm required to do more because I've been blessed more. And that is a principle that I was raised upon. I mean, I even wrote a book about it. Said, As you know, I've written eight books. Six have been published. But I wrote one book that talks about the cross-section between business success and faith and spiritual fortitude. And so I do believe that. That does drive me. That is who I am. And so, yes, sir, there is a spiritual faith-based factor in me making this choice. (laughs) Bob, you know, the other thing that really popped to mind when you answer the question about why you're doing this kind of crazy thing is really the mind of the entrepreneur. And I could definitely see it. I'm thinking, you know, when you said about Dr. King and Nelson Mandela, they were entrepreneurs of sorts, weren't they? I mean, they created something that never existed before against the odds. And it's not a fair comparison in the sense of bringing up business entrepreneurs compared to what those two people did in their lives as absolute giants that 500 years will be studying what they did also. But I think about the Elon Musks of the world who took on a crazy idea to build an electric car when people said it'll happen, it'll happen later. Don't worry about it. It'll happen later. And he did it and he has completely transformed the automobile industry because every major player is all about electric and it would never have happened without Elon Musk. And so I'm hearing some of that entrepreneurial DNA that you've got that is almost the underpinning of this campaign. You know, so that's so very true. I do believe that there is a spiritual component to entrepreneurial success because when you are trying to do something that has never been done before, 
there has to be a spiritual dimension in that because what you are trying to do is to create something out of nothing. And that's what we do as entrepreneurs. And so you look at all the developments, the iPad, the iPhone, like you said with Elon Musk and going to Mars and all these things. These are things that had not been done before. So the entrepreneur had to have a spiritual dimension that says that if I do these things, I believe that I can achieve these things. And that's what we do as entrepreneurs. And so I do agree with you. And so this run for mayor is very similar. How I'm approaching this is as a business entrepreneur. And there's a term that I came up with that I coined called mayorpreneur. Right. So when I give my speech, I talked about I'm going to be the first mayorpreneur of Baltimore City because I'm going to use business knowledge, business principles, entrepreneurial energy to move our city to a whole new level. And I do believe Sid, that there's a spiritual dimension in that. Yeah. I hadn't actually thought about that until you brought up this issue. But of course, you know, I've worked with and talked to many, many entrepreneurs and they all believe in something that others don't think is going to happen. And so what is that? It's not rational. I mean, they have their business models, as you know, and their business plans. And there's a lot of rational data and everything else behind there. But there's also this belief and kind of what you've done and the example of what you've done. And then as we're talking about it now, this is like a big insight, at least to me and I hope to my listeners. And I'm going to share with my students as well that there may very well be a spiritual, and it doesn't have to be religion in any traditional sense, but right, spiritual dimension to entrepreneurship, which is very exciting, actually. Well, you know, Sid, in my first book I wrote, which was, by the way, I started the research for it at Tuck, second year at Tuck. I was working in the uh, programs that we had at Tuck on developing entrepreneurs. And my first book I wrote, it was called Black Wealth Through Black Entrepreneurship, right? That study started at Tuck. And one of the principles or one of the qualities that I identified in successful entrepreneurs in the minority and women business community was what I call spiritual fortitude, spiritual fortitude. And like you said, it's not about religion per se. It is that there is a belief that the future will be better than the present. The belief that, yes, I have the power to create something out of nothing. It is a power that drives people when they're having a difficult time making payroll or when their customers or potential customers are not returning their phone calls. You know, it's how do you keep going when all of the signals tell you to stop and tell you to give up? To me, that's a spiritual dimension. The term I coined was spiritual fortitude. Spiritual fortitude. It's an excellent term. And I think your example is a kind of exhibit A in this. You mentioned you went to University of Pennsylvania. That was for engineering. Is that what you studied then? That's correct. I studied mechanical engineering and applied mechanics at UPenn. And then afterwards, you mentioned Tuck, which, of course, is Dartmouth College, two Ivy League institutions. But you grew up in inner city of Baltimore, and you described briefly, and I'll ask you more about it in, in a bit, about a disadvantaged background. How did this happen that you end up going to two Ivy League schools, leaving aside all the subsequent successes, just the education part? I grew up initially in segregated Baltimore City. I mean, Baltimore City historically has been a very segregated city. It's still a Southern city and people often forget that. But that's what I was raised in. And so it wasn't until high school said that I went to school with white kids, with kids who were not African-American. So white kids, Latino kids, Asian kids. So my first time I'm in an integrated school, I'm in majority white school for the first time in my life. Because prior to that, I'd gone to all black schools with all black female teachers. So now I'm in high school, Polytech, which is an engineering scientific high school in Baltimore City. 
And I'm just shocked. And it's just a culture shock, right? But what was interesting, said to your question about my schools I attended, there were two professors there that I'll never forget them, Mr. Knighting and Mr. Sanford, two white men, right? One was about 6'3", about 300 pounds. The other one, you know, was a real smart guy. But one day they, they asked me to, to stay after class. They wanted to talk to me. So I'm thinking I'm in trouble, right? What did I do wrong, right? So I stay after school and they come to me and they say, Wallace, because at my school, you call by your last name, Wallace or Brown, whatever it is. So Wallace, we've been thinking, we've been talking about you. And they said, we think that you should apply to Ivy League schools. Now, Sid, I will tell you, honestly, at the time, I had no idea what Ivy League school was, right? I thought it was some kind of cologne you wear, something like that, right? So I'm like, okay, what is this Ivy League thing, right? So they began to educate me, Sid, on that process. And they said, we're going to help you. We're going to identify the schools and we're going to help you. And we're going to pay your application fee and all that. Because my mom and dad hadn't gone to college. So they didn't know about this either. And because I trusted these two men, I said, sir, Mr. Knight and Mr. Sanford, I have no idea what this means or what I'm doing. But if you tell me to do it because I trust you, I will do it. And so said I was obedient. I was obedient. So I applied to the schools and by God's grace, I was admitted because I was a really good student in school, said I was an athlete too, but not a very good athlete. Right. <laughs> so I was a better student than I was an athlete. And so it was clear to me that if I was going to make it out of poverty, it would be through my education and not my athletic ability. <laughs> So we applied, Sid, and got into UPenn. And so at that point, Sid, it became, for me, like a standard, right? It was like, okay, if I'm going to go to business school, I'm going to only apply to the top business school, Sid. And if I don't get in, I'm not going. That was my view at the time. And again, by God's grace, I was able to be admitted. And that's the standard that I have set for myself. Not that Ivy schools are only the best schools. That's not true. But I'm just saying there's a standard that I've set for myself of how I want to live and what I expect for me that I've lived by and tried to help my children to live by. And it's not about Ivy League schools specifically, but when you... um you get to another level of some type, of some form, whatever venue it is, and you experience that, you gain this incredible confidence that, hey, you know what? I did it. And you don't necessarily have that confidence stepping in because you look around and you say, look at these kids. They grew up way different than me. And yes. whether you know it or not, you intuitively know they've got a lot of advantages over you. So you got to kind of be willing to say, well, I don't really care. I'm going to do it. I got a little chip on my shoulder, whatever. But the point I'm making is once you get to a certain level, it then becomes your, not quite your floor, but your standard, as you said. Absolutely. You know, it's a powerful thing. You also see it. I'm sure you've seen it yourself in business as well. When you give an opportunity to someone and they blow through it and they've done it, all of a sudden you've taken someone that's got some, obviously some talent, but is now playing at a different game and is not willing to accept second or third tier anymore because they've now seen, and it's more about themselves, how they think about themselves. And I'm sure you've seen that also in business, maybe in part for yourself, but then other people that you've helped along the way where they've gotten to another level and now there's no stopping them, which I think it's one of the greatest gifts a leader can give to anyone, anyone else, whether it's in business. And in some ways you're talking about the same thing for the citizens of Baltimore to show them that there's a better thing. And for, you mentioned entrepreneurs, potential entrepreneurs, or even people never thought about entrepreneurship, but then listen to Bob Wallace and say, well, why the heck can't I do that? Amen. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, said to your point, I tell this funny story. It wasn't funny back then because sometimes when you raise the level of expectation on yourself, sometimes you need a butt kicking experience, right? So I'm at UPenn, real quick. I'm at UPenn my freshman year and I go to meet my advisor 
And he does everything he can to discourage me, right? And this is a guy supposed to be helping me, right? I'm trying to get my class together for engineering. And this guy, either he was a racist or he whatever, or he had a bad day or what it was, but he was not helpful to me. So I was devastated by that. So I run back to my dorm room and I cry like a baby, but I pick up the phone and I call my mother and father. And mama answers the phone and she can tell something is wrong with me. And while I'm talking to her, I said, Mom, this man tells me that maybe I shouldn't be here at this Ivy League school and maybe I should come home. And Mama, maybe I made a mistake. Well, fortunately for me now, I can say it now, but at the time, my dad overheard the conversation. So my dad took a phone from Mama. He said, boy, what's the problem? He said, I tell you what. He said, don't you ever let anybody tell you what you're worth or what you can or cannot do. He said, I didn't raise you that way, son. So I tell you what, dry your eyes get up off your butt and get ready for class the next day. And then he said something that really stuck. He said, he said, by the way, and don't call home no more worrying your mother about this. He said, you be a man and do what you have to do. And so it says sometimes we need those butt kicking experiences like that to get us back on track. <laughs> yeah, I love the sentiment. Don't let anyone else decide your life for you. And you you have this point in story you just shared, but I see it all the time. I, you even see it in business in this context, which is uh, you have a boss and the boss wants you to do X and you know that's not the right thing to do, but you don't want to get fired. So you got to figure out a way to keep the boss happy, but do Y, which is what you think is really the right thing. And I don't know that I've ever met a senior executive that didn't figure that out along the way. And the ones that don't move up are the ones that do what others tell them and then take the blame. Yep. When it doesn't, it doesn't work. work. Yep, absolutely. Right. Yes, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So you were, I'm going to guess, one of not a very large number of African-American students, both at Penn and then maybe even especially in business school. This was in the 80s and 2020, one third of the student body at Tuck are people of minority backgrounds. But that was not the case in the 1980s. If not, say so. In my Tuck class, I think we started with four or five African Americans in my class, and we ended with three. I think it was that graduated. We had a couple of Asian Americans that, well, they were actually from foreign students, but they were Asian. And we had a few Spanish speaking or Latino students, but it was very, very few of us. And I remember still having these conversations with the dean at the time, Dean West. I'm not sure, you know, if you remember him or not. Dean West, I was talking to him about, sir, we need to have more faculty here that's diverse as well as students. And we would have that conversation. But one thing about Tuck, though, said for me was even though we were small in number, we always felt welcome. We always felt like part of the family. And even though we were small in numbers, I think that's the culture of Tuck that really attracted me to Tuck. And that family atmosphere, that family dynamic still exists today, I feel. But it's very helpful to us back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. When you graduated from business school, so you had been working before that, but you graduated from business school. Did you go straight into an entrepreneurial endeavor or were there a couple of steps along the way? So when I was getting out of Tuck, I had to decide, Sid, because I had, you know, I was fortunate. I mean, I could have gone to McKinsey Consulting. I probably could have gone to investment banking if I had really focused on that. But there was something in my spirit that kept pushing me back to get back into technology because I felt that was my destiny. And so I took a job at IBM. Unfortunately, IBM paid a fraction of what I could have made on Wall Street or at, at McKinsey Consulting, but it did get me back to Baltimore City and it did get me back into technology and engineering. And so I joined a group in IBM, brand new group. They were creating people who had engineering backgrounds, but MBAs and business experience. 
And that's the group that I joined. And it was helpful. But I knew I knew then said that I was going to be an entrepreneur. So as I was building my IBM career, I was building in parallel my own business career for my own business. And so that's how I built it. So my time in IBM, we had two parallel tracks. One was the IBM track and one was the Bob Wallace as an entrepreneur track. You tell me you did two different jobs at once. That is correct. I did. <laughs> I, I just want to point that out for people listening because that's you know, if you just wait, you just sit there and do your job and wait for some magical thing to happen. It doesn't happen. That's exactly right, Sid. You have to be intentional about it. So it was like, Sid, every experience that I had at IBM, and IBM is a great company, gave me great training, great perspective. But everything that I did, Sid, there was a great level of intentionality that said, okay, how will this help IBM? Because I'm very sensitive to adding value to IBM. But at the same time, how does it add value to Bob Wallace Incorporated, right? And so moving in those two parallel tracks helped me to be able to leap out on my own to do it quicker and more efficiently. And what was that first business that you did outside when you left IBM? So it was a consulting job. So I took an IT consulting job where basically I was doing what I was doing for IBM as a systems engineer, but now I was doing it for Bob Wallace. And so I had a small group of clients that I had built relationships with in my journey through IBM. And then I was able to build upon those relationships because, you know, business is all about relationships, right? And so we were able to build that relationship and build the business. And then as we were able to get bigger contracts, then I was able to hire to hire more people and then move on from there. Now, you've also done a lot of different things in terms of business. You didn't do and only build the consulting business. You've done a few other things along the way, right? That's correct. So I started in the consulting business and then we got into from there as we grew, we got into an IT services kind of model. Right. So we were doing work in cybersecurity and biometrics, software engineering, data analytics. So we kind of incrementally grew and expanded there. But later in life, I guess I'm a serial entrepreneur. We started an energy company when President Obama became elected because we looked at what direction was President Obama going to take the nation. And we saw for the first time a president that was willing to put big money into energy and renewable energy type technologies. And that's always been a passion of mine. As a matter of fact, when I was at UPenn, senior project was in solar energy. So I was working with scientists from Israel and Egypt on using solar energy to do water desalination for power generation, for heating water, the whole thing. But that was way before its time. But Obama put money into that area in a big way. So we started an energy company that did large-scale solar energy projects, energy data analytics, microgrid engineering type work. Now, are you able to run those businesses while running for mayor? Like, how do you balance that? So I, over a year ago, said I brought in some executives to run the businesses. So at this point, I am not in the day-to-day operation of the businesses. I'm on the board. And once case I'm, I'm on the chairman of the board, but that's going to change once I become mayor. I've not been in the business and operation since it for over a year now. So I'm focusing 100% on becoming mayor of Baltimore City. What's the first thing you're going to do once you're elected? couple of things there. My first 100 days, number one, is to conduct a forensic audit on all city agencies. I'm convinced that there's a level of, if not corruption said, just inefficiencies, right? That the city can benefit from by us doing an audit of what we're spending in those agencies. Our city budget, we have, I'm running as mayor, you're running a $3.5 billion corporation, right? So I want to know what am I working with day one, first 100 days. Second thing that we're going to do, I've got seven platforms that I'm pushing to rebuild Baltimore City. And that requires that for each of those platforms that we have objectives 
that we can agree upon with the community and with all stakeholders. So we're going to identify those objectives and then we're going to provide what's called key results. John Doerr is a book out on OKRs, right? Objectives and key results. We're going to use that methodology to manage our performance in Baltimore City. Each of the seven platforms will have that. And then that information set will be on a dashboard that will be available to the people of Baltimore City. So that 24-7, they can look at how is Mayor Wallace performing on the promises that he made. Because one thing I am as a, as a leader said, I'm not afraid to be accountable. I'm not afraid to be out in front. I'm not afraid to take the hits. If I know that I'm doing the right thing for the city and the people of the city, I'll take the hits. I'll take the arrows because to fix our city is going to require that we make some painful decisions here. Right. Because I'm talking about disrupting the structure which is why they're afraid of me. I'm looking to come in and disrupt this government structure. I'm not interested in nibbling around the edges on this dysfunctional environment. I'm looking to disrupt it and to rebuild it. And that's going to take courage. It's going to take strength. And I think that I can bring that to the table. There are a lot of people that really don't like what you said, and they're probably people that work in the government, among others, or people that benefit from the status quo. And, you know, there are strong unions, there are established systems, and I'm sure you've thought about it, but how how do you manage that? Because I could see, even if you get to the stage you're talking about, the transition is going to be very messy because you could easily see walkouts. You could see a lot of bad press. That's a group that's really well-connected, and they've been doing this for decades, decades not one or two decades either. So, I mean, what are you going to do about all that? My leadership style is a servant leadership style. And that's how I raised my family. That's how I built my business. So I respect all stakeholders. And my approach would be, let us talk and let's hear each other out. And let's see if we can define common ground and common objectives. So I'm not going to come in with a day one with a sword and cutting everybody up. That's not my approach. It is to understand first, to understand, and then to move forward together. Now, I am prepared to fight for things that I think are important that may not be popular. But I believe, Sid, and I've already reached out to the unions. and We're having conversations. So I'm not their enemy. We may have a different view on how to get to the future. But I think we can find common ground. So my approach, Sid, would be to seek common ground. And I would tell you, Sid, I must confess, though, that one of the most difficult things for me to overcome as being mayor will be that I cannot make things happen as quickly as I'm accustomed to in the business world. As CEO, if I say go east, we go east. If I say go west, we go west. At the end of the day, the buck stops here. In government, as you know, Sid, that's not that easy. You got city council to deal with. You got the state's attorney. You got the governor. You got the the FOP. You got the teachers union. I mean, my goodness, it's going to be a major objective. And that will be my biggest challenge. But I believe that it can be done. I really do. And a lot of that is about building relationships and trust as it is in business. Now, some of those groups may not be willing to meet you halfway or even a quarter of the way because of established ways of doing things. But you also you made me think of something else. You mentioned briefly President Trump and how his approach is really taking you out of the Republican Party or at least running as an independent now. But this is also a business person. Debatable whether he was successful, but regardless, he was a business person. And you see his style 
And you also see his form of governing. And I don't know whether people have asked you this at all. I think maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I mean, you don't look like President Trump. You have a totally different background than President Trump. So in many ways, you should be getting the benefit of the doubt. Nonetheless, this is another person from a business world that has found that his traditional approach doesn't work very well. And most of the ways in which, quote unquote, governing has happened is through executive order and not through legislation. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what do you think? Yes, Sid, I do get asked that question, especially from my opponent, right? Well, you know, Bob Wallace is a businessman, but also Trump was a businessman. I mean, there's a lot of anti-Trump sentiment in Baltimore City and in most urban centers in America. So this idea that to tie me to Trump is what they try to do. I remind them, Sid, yes, Trump is a businessman, but our character and our belief system is only amplified when we get into business. So what you're seeing from Mr. Trump is an amplification of who he is as a person. And so there are other business people who have a different character and different ethical morals and things like that, that will have a different outcome, even though they're business people. It's kind of like saying, say, well, if one black person commits a crime, then all black people will commit a crime, right? So it's just crazy. And so the idea that because he's a businessman, that I'm going to be just like him, is just that's ludicrous. But it is something that I have to address. My opponent does use that <laughs> in, in attacking me. Of course, of course he would. And it makes perfect sense from a political point. Can you point to other people with your background, business background that have been successful in government? Well, you know, the one that comes to mind for me, Sid, is Maynard Jackson, who was mayor of Atlanta. Now, he wasn't an engineer tech you know, person. He was a lawyer, but he had a business background, business experience. I think that Maynard Jackson is one of the main reasons that Atlanta became the Atlanta it is today. If I look at Anthony Williams, I think it's Anthony Williams, Mayor Williams of Washington, D.C., back in the late 90s. I mean, he was the one that turned Washington, D.C. around. Washington, D.C. in the late 90s was very similar to what Baltimore is like today. It had a high crime rate. Education system wasn't working. Businesses were leaving the city. And he came in and he made some structural changes to city government that made the city of Washington, D.C. much more attractive to investors and the business community. The same for Maynard Jackson. My vision said is to do the same thing for Baltimore City. If we can get the right mayor with the right business sense, the right team, right plan to execute on, that we can make Baltimore what Atlanta and Washington, D.C. are today. And I believe that we can do that. Yeah, those are actually really great examples. And Washington, even more so, because it's literally next door. And Washington was not an easy place and very troubled, very high crime rate. And it's an amazing place to visit. And you see the construction has been going on for a decade plus. Right. And I don't know the data. I haven't seen the data specifically, but certainly in the uh, in the city, it seems like it's a bit more positively integrated than some other cities. Again, I don't know about all the suburbs and the distance, but when you're in the city, you do see a lot of positives. You know, you also said that one of the things you want to do is create 100,000 jobs, 100,000 jobs in Baltimore City. How in the world can you do a thing like that? Absolutely. So we have a four prong approach to do that, Sid. One is bottom up, top down, middle out, and a major infrastructure play. So what I mean by that bottom up means that we've got to expand the capacity of our existing small businesses and increase the number of small businesses in Baltimore City. We know from the data that 65% of jobs in most urban centers come from small businesses. We know that 95% of businesses in those urban centers are small businesses. So if we're going to build an urban economy, we've got to have a robust small business economy. 
That's the first leg that we're going to do. Top Down says we've got to find a big sister or big brother company to either move their corporate headquarters to Baltimore or some part of their corporate infrastructure, regional headquarters, or whatever the case might be. We need to have some big sister and big brother players in our local economy to help build that economy. When I say middle out, I'm talking about attracting foreign capital to come and invest in Baltimore City. Our country, with all its challenges and problems that we have right now, we are still a great destination point for capital. Capital looks for the best place to land, and America still is, in many places, the best place to land. And I think as it pertains to the East Coast, I think Baltimore City has one of the most wonderful places to invest capital. We've got physical assets and land. we got a low cost of living. we got one of the best ports on the eastern seaboard. So we've got a lot of assets here that will attract foreign capital. And one of the things I've been able to do since travel globally, so I know people and entities who are looking to invest capital and I think Baltimore could be a great destination. But the fourth part, said, which is very, I'm excited about, is the infrastructure play. Baltimore City has 17,000 vacant properties, said. That's amazing. 17,000 vacant homes and vacant properties. My plan is this. We're going to create an investment fund that we run by the city. where We're going to take those funds and we're going to rebuild these properties. We're going to rebuild these homes. And we're going to use our own citizens to rebuild it. We're not going to go to New York or New Jersey or Florida. We're going to use our people here in Baltimore City. We're going to use our own businesses to rebuild these properties. And then we're going to use the people in the communities to not only rebuild them, but give them a path to home ownership. What you find in Baltimore City is that our home ownership, especially among the African-American community, has been decreasing. And you and I know that home ownership is a cornerstone to building wealth, to stabilizing communities, and to giving people hope. And so by doing this, rebuilding this, we can create 100,000 jobs. So I'm very confident in that. I mean, even if we don't get to 100,000, if we get to 80,000 or 70,000, it'll be a big improvement, say, from where we are today. Well, the, the entire population of Baltimore City, as you said, has been declining. So that's as a percentage is kind of a gigantic percentage. And as your opponent, so this would be the Democratic candidate, no doubt, is the only real opponent, the major opponent. Has he engaged on kind of the issues that you're bringing up or has it been uh, like this guy doesn't have a chance? He's a business person and he's not part of the machine and he's going to destroy jobs, et cetera. Or ha- has he actually engaged in some of these kind of substantive discussions about job creation, about innovation, about entrepreneurship or about anything else it takes to, to kind of revive the city? My opponent said is a 36-year-old kid who has spent his whole career in City Hall. So he's never run a business. He's never raised a family. He's never traveled the world. His only experience is City Hall. Now, he feels that it's a coronation, right? So he feels that, hey, I won the Democratic primary. I'm going to be automatically the mayor of Baltimore City. So he's avoiding me. He doesn't want to debate me. So we've had three debates so far. First one, he didn't show up. And the last two, he insisted that we speak at different times, which is not really a debate. So he's hiding from me, Sid, and he's avoiding me because he knows that if he has to stand on his record, that he's not going to win. But I will tell you, I'm reminded of an old saying from Mahatma Gandhi when he was fighting the British to free India from British colonialism. He said this about the British. He said, first, they ignored us. He said, then they laughed at us, then they fought us, and then we win. And so we're at the, they're fighting us full. So when I made my announcement, my opponent, they laughed at us. I mean, they ignored us, right? And then as they saw we were getting traction, then they kind of laughed at us. But now they're fighting us, Sid, then they're fighting us. But guess what? The next step is we win. So we're going to win. <laughs> 
That uh, <laughs> I love that. That pattern is what you see for innovators in new industries. The established players, they're laughing. They say, this is ridiculous. And you're using the words I think are the right words. You use the word disruption. That's what you see. And as you well know, in so many industries. So let me ask you this. Are you having fun? I'm having a wonderful time. So, so say, I mean, look, I'm up every morning at 4 a.m. and I am running the whole day. I mean, the interviews, every time there's an issue in the city, I get the media coming to me to interview me. We've had foreign media come visit Baltimore because they heard about what I'm trying to do here. So it's very exciting. But what's most rewarding for me are the people that I'm meeting in Baltimore City and the neighborhoods that I am able to visit. And it's so encouraging. Our city has such great DNA, strong bones. And all we need is a leader that can pull it together and make it happen. So I'm having a blast, Sid. I'm having a blast. Now, I'll probably on November 4th drive to my knees in total exhaustion. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. I would think of it such a big challenge for you, given your you're up against such a powerful machine that people don't even have to think. It's automatic. Of course, you vote Democrat. You've done it for 50 years. Is that you actually have to get face to face with thousands, hundreds of thousands. They have to see you. And you have to have that type of conversation. Many people don't pay attention till the very, very, very end. And not everybody votes, et cetera, et cetera. And you mentioned the, they're not quite debates in the way you described them, but at least that element. But how are you getting to people kind of one-on-one and one in 10 so they see you and they could hear some of what you're sharing with me today and with our audience today? So there's no question that the pandemic has made this process a lot more complicated than it would normally be. So we're using technology, but leveraging technology in a very, very powerful way. So, you know, we've got a great social media team. We've got these millennials who are doing creative things with social media, and we're getting a lot of traction there. But keep in mind also, said we're walking in the communities. We walk every day. We pick a community and we walk it. And my team and I, you know, volunteers, we walk it and meeting the people. We do social distance. We wear masks and all that. But we're out in the neighborhoods. But the third way I think we're going to do this and win this is through strategic partnerships, right? Because we know that by working through people, stakeholders who have relationships in different communities and all that, if we can get them on board, then we can tap into their sphere of influence And we are doing that very successfully. So I tell you, Sid, we're going to win this thing. And I know all the odds and all it's an uphill battle, but we're going to win this race. And there'll be a lot of surprise people on November 4th. But those are the ways we're going to win this is through old school and new school approaches, right? Technology, but also in the neighborhoods, in your face. And I will tell you, and I walk with Wallace campaign, and this is all anecdotal. But I would tell you that every person that we've met on the walk said they know who Bob Wallace is. They know my background and they will say, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, sir, but I'm voting for you because you are the change that our city needs. And I would just say if that little small sample is indicative of the environment, then we're on a pretty strong path here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really exciting. We're about a month away from election day. And so we'll be able to track that. So one of the things you said earlier is you moved back to Baltimore, maybe after school, you wanted to, you said, take care of my parents. So mom and daddy were getting up in age and their health wasn't so great. And I've always kind of been the uh, go-to child. You know, every family, there's a child that tends to have a step Sorry, up. Sorry, how many siblings are there in your family? So we have five boys, five boys in my family. Where I'm are you? The fourth. The, you're number four, second youngest. Uh-huh. I'm the fourth. I'm what's called the knee baby in the African-American culture, the knee baby. The knee baby is defined as the child that mama had on her knee, had the infant in her arms. So we're called the knee baby. So I'm the knee baby, but I'm the fourth child of five boys. My older brothers all became career military. 
military men, and they built distinguished careers in military, did wonderful things. I was the first son, child, to go to college in my family. Wow. And so are your parents still with us? Now, mom and daddy have passed, but they had wonderful lives and they did wonderful things. My mother, although she was a recovering alcoholic in her 40s, she went to college and got a four-year degree to teach. And then for the rest of her life, she taught special ed children in Baltimore City. She went back to college in her 50s and got her master's. And then in her 60s, she started her PhD. But then her health began to fail and she couldn't complete it. But mom and daddy, they are my heroes because they went from nothing to something. And they always hold them up as my models of success. Right. That's fantastic to go back to school, given five kids that you're bringing up and a tough background and go back to school, not once, not even twice, but three times. I love that story. That's great. And they would have seen your success in business. And I'm sure that gave them a lot of pride and a lot of happiness. Well, not only your own, you chose a path, but you mentioned your brothers with distinguished careers in the military as well. You know, you said we had mom and dad were praying parents. As a kid, I remember hearing mama would always say when we were in our most dire situations with no food, no heat, sometimes no electricity, and mama would remind us, and she would say, God will make a way. God will make a way. And I will tell you, mama was right. I mean, even though we struggled early on, she never gave up. She never lost her faith. Daddy, they never lost their faith. And I just saw our family progress over the years and get stronger and better and overcome these obstacles. And mama was right. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, mama was right. And she would be, uh, both your parents would be really not just proud, but excited to see what this fourth son is trying to do. He must have been the crazy kid because he thinks he's going to become the mayor of Baltimore. And now he actually has a chance. <laughs> Bob, what a great conversation. I have one last question for you. And I like to ask all the guests in the SIDCast this question. It's an advice question, but it's got a little twist to it. The advice is advice to yourself at the age of 21. If you could magically go back to the 21-year-old Bob Wallace, doing whatever you were doing at that time and kind of lean over and say, you know, Bob, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's something you want to think about, there's something you should do or not do, what advice would you give to the young Bob Wallace? That's a great question, Sid. And I, I know the answer like it was like took my tongue. For me, it would have been to humble myself sooner in life, to humble myself. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, I've always felt that I was a fairly smart guy. I was a hardworking young man, had big dreams and all that's fine. But I always felt that I could do it by myself, that I didn't need anybody to help me, that I could just do it myself just by brute strength and my hard work and my intelligence and all that. Right. And if I had learned at a younger age to leverage the power of strategic partnerships, to leverage the power of getting people to help me at a younger age, I would be much further along, much more successful than I am today. But I had to learn the hard way. And so I would tell young people, humble yourself, listen, seek out help and advice, and then take that help and advice, follow it. And you'll find that your path to the future, your path to success will be a lot less painful (laughs) if you humble yourself and seek out people that are willing to help you and that you can build alliances and partnerships around. Yeah. And in fact, you had that one example you shared of the two, were they teachers or professors? Teachers, I think. A professor that said, you know, you need to apply uh, and we're going to help and we're going to pay your fees as well. That's great advice, particularly for people that are fortunate enough to be really smart and capable because 
it's actually kind of ironic as I think about what you're saying, because you're a man that's all about self-reliance. An entrepreneur by definition isn't. You talked a little bit about your family and how you had to do that. But really the lesson you're you're sharing is not to stop being self-reliant, but to actually not let that dominate everything that you're doing. At the same time, to be reaching out to other people, asking for help. And I have found people like to help. People enjoy help. People get a lot of pleasure out of. That's true, Sid. I mean, that's especially true when I'm talking about from an investment standpoint, because when I started the business, I used my own money to start the business, right? And I think that if I had been humble enough to reach out to get maybe investors early on in my business career, that I could have grown faster and grown bigger. But because of how I was as a person, I wanted to use my own money. Right. And so that's fine. And since that I don't have any debt now and I, and that's great, you know, but I think I could have done a lot more things if I had humbled myself and sought resources outside of my own resources to help me. Yeah. Interesting, interesting lesson. Bob, as you go towards the finish line on November 4th, I wish you all the best of luck and it'd be very exciting to see this happen and see what you can do. So with your background, your energy, your entrepreneurialism in the mayor's uh, office, it would be pretty cool to see. Yes, I think so, too. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) And I I love the fact that it's not if, but when. (laughs) There you go, brother. That's right. (laughs) No, see, I'm telling you, we're going to win this. I'm telling people we're going to win this. I mean, you know, like I told you at the outset of the show, it was like David and Goliath. I mean, no one thought that David could be the biggest, strongest warrior, Philistine, at that time. But what did David do? David took his strengths. He took what he knew how to do well. He had the confidence and the courage to engage. And he took Goliath out. What Bob Wallace is going to do in the city of Baltimore is going to take Goliath out. And we're going to have a different city, a different place. Bob Wallace, thank you so much for being on the Sidcast. Wonderful conversation. We'll be watching you. (laughs) Thank you, Sid. Appreciate it. You have a great day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.